0: welcome back to in a mother's mind our co-produced podcast series from pause it aims to raise awareness about the experiences and needs of women who have had children removed from their care it was created by a group of four women who have experience of having children removed from their care who have all completed the pause program i'm helena a graduate from the pause program we know from government figures that domestic abuse is one of the leading causes of homelessness amongst women, and housing is the primary barrier for women attempting to leave abusers. And when there are children involved, this causes added complexities. In this episode, we're going to talk to Vicki Jennings, Senior Practitioner for BCHA's Women's Refuge in Plymouth, to hear a frontline local perspective on some of the challenges women and children face when fleeing domestic abuse as well as some solutions that are available. We'll then speak to barrister Rachel Cooper to delve more into the issue of domestic abuse and children's social care involvement and to get a legal perspective on what's being done to make the courts more trauma involved and what more needs to be done. First let's hear from Vicky who is being interviewed by Heidi.
1: Hello, Vicky. Tell us a bit about yourself and your relationship with Pauls.
2: I'm a senior practitioner with BCHA, which is Bournemouth Church's Has an Association in Plymouth. I've been working in the homeless sector for about eight years now, and I currently manage multiple accommodations within the Plymouth area. One being our female-only accommodation, which is where the relationship with Pauls comes in. So with our female-only accommodation, we've had a lot of women that have worked with pools and they have been supported by them, which is how I've ended up meeting a lot more workers and understanding what the service offers and all the great work that they do.
1: Thinking about housing and women working with Pauls, why might a woman feel trapped or unable to leave an abusive relationship?
2: When you're a mother and in a domestic abusive relationship, it's not really as simple as just leaving. Whether you have children in your care or your children are in other temporary arrangements, the risk is still there. The threats are still being made. Finance is a massive barrier to women leaving. There has been so many women unable to leave due to no access to money. This can also be a barrier when women are placed out of area because they might not have access to children in contact centres. That all comes with a cost
1: what kind of negative coping mechanism can result from domestic abuse and housing stress during the aftercare proceedings?
2: Isolation and mental health impact, such as PTSD, anxiety and depression. Because the resources within the NHS are stretched, access to mental health services is a massive barrier. And due to it being a massive barrier, You can go to the doctor and you can get prescribed sleeping tablets and that could lead on to them becoming
1: dependent on prescribed medication. What housing solutions should be available to women and their children when fleeing an abusive relationship? Safety
2: is paramount. It is the most important thing. A safe environment with access to all facilities. The small things that we take for granted, such as a microwave, is actually a luxury. Should a woman and her three children be placed in emergency accommodation, they are placed in one hotel room with no cooking facilities. And this then impacts the finances. I feel like there is no one solution for all women who have survived or fleeing, because although they're all at risk, They're all individuals. There's different housing that they require. Some people need to be out of area, which doesn't happen very quickly. Some people need to be living alone. Some people need family accommodation.
1: Because every situation is different, it's finding the right way on helping them out in a situation that could be fleeing or staying behind and it's having the room to accommodate them what have you seen that works well? I work in Plymouth,
2: so I'm going to base it on the response of the city. So whilst we cannot fix all housing issues, we have been able to provide more temporary accommodation. Within BCHA, alongside our female-only accommodation, we now have 27 family accommodations. This means 27 families will now have the kitchen. The access to facilities, it's a massive thing. So whilst we might not be able to provide one bedroom houses, we are able to provide more accommodation so people can start
1: to build up their life. I know you said that some people don't have fridges or microwaves or whatever. Is there anywhere that you can suggest going when they're homeless?
2: We have Shekinah, which is our local day centre, and that provides food to people that are currently homeless. We also have Sunflower, which is managed by Trevi. The difficulty that we do have is when we're looking at dinners and children, that's where the challenge is. If a child has been at school all day and there is nowhere where families can go to cook a meal, because it costs quite a lot to be able to take your child out for a meal. And if you have three children and you're on Minimal benefits,
1: it's unaffordable. What about practical support for storage and looking after their belongings? When it
2: comes to storage, it comes with a cost and it's something there isn't any funding for. So it's a barrier. If their belongings go into storage, it's costly and they then get recharged it. So it can become a debt. But if they don't, then they have to start saving
1: to be able to build up stuff is there some sort of scheme that you could use to get them funding towards certain things like wardrobes chest of drawers when women come in
2: they've lost everything so we provide small things like pajamas something that you don't think is important we will have the basic starter pack for someone to be able to have at least one night's sleep where they're not going to be thinking about the things that they might be missing when it comes to moving people on independently, we get funding. We apply to all charity grants. We make sure that everyone is able to have a bed because everyone needs to move out with a bed. They will have bedding.
1: We'll try and get as much money as we can. That's it. It all comes down to funding and having support from other people. What message would you give to women in this complex situation?
2: try and prepare. Looking for support and reaching out for help in a safe way, whether it's a local domestic abuse service, school safeguarding needs, GP surgeries, prepare. If you have pets, pets are a massive barrier at the moment. Try and look for alternative homes for them, such as Refuge for Pets. Try and prepare.
0: Thanks so much to Fikki for talking to us and sharing some of the support services available in Plymouth. Domestic abuse and housing are linked everywhere. If you are experiencing or are at risk of domestic abuse, you can ask your local council for help to find another place to live. You can also call the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, which is free, for support finding a refuge space. In the second half of this episode, we'll delve more into domestic abuse, its complexities, and women's experience of the family thoughts. To do this, we are going to speak to Barrister Rachel Cooper, who is being interviewed by myself.
3: My name's Rachel Cooper. I'm a family law barrister at Corum Chambers. We are a specialist set of family law practitioners. We have specialists in public law proceedings, so those include care proceedings and then private law proceedings, so disputes between parents about where children should live and how much time they should spend with the other parent. I'd just like to say, actually, you've asked me to think about some really tough questions. So I did reach out to three of my colleagues in chambers, Hannah Gomisall, Lucy Wicks, and Ramajit Kang. So I'd just like to acknowledge them.
0: What is your experience of working with women with experience of domestic abuse going through public law proceedings?
3: I would say that dealing with female victims, but also occasionally male victims of abuse occurs in about 60% of the cases that I work on. It's really common and obviously there is a huge spectrum of abuse from physical abuse through to coercive controlling behaviour, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, manipulation.
0: It's shocking just how high that percentage is. And how commonplace it now is in a lot of families and relationships. When you're dealing with ab- abusive relationships, what additional complexities are there when our children involved?
3: There are huge additional complexities is the honest answer. The way in which we understand domestic abuse is often as a cycle and it takes time to break that cycle both parents are involved as well as the local authority and a guardian who represents the children. And you're looking at what needs to be put in place to ensure that those children are safeguarded, that they are protected in whatever environment they are going to live in, whether that is an environment that is provided by the state, such as foster care, whether that's an adoptive placement, a kinship placement, or whether that's placement with one or both of the parents, you have to consider not only each of their individual abilities to break free of that cycle, but also their ability as a couple to break free. And so there's this double layering of the ability to break out of that cycle, which makes it incredibly complex But also, care proceedings are supposed to be dealt with in 26 weeks, and that is taking account of the impact of delay on children and the need to ensure their stability in both the short, medium and long term. Within that period of time, each of those parents have to be able to demonstrate that they can build new pathways and strategies to not end up in an abusive relationship with someone else or with each other again. And that is an awful lot to ask of people in a very, very short period of time. In terms of other issues, you obviously have the impact of that cycle on the ability to prioritize the needs of a child over a parent's needs Most of the time when people are in abusive relationships, there are aspects of that relationship that they hold on to, which stops them from recognising what makes it toxic and unhealthy and harmful to them and their children, and certainly for women, potentially fatally harmful. And it's also about support, because often that partner, as abusive as they might be, is their main source of support. And many of the women that I deal with in public law proceedings are often very isolated. Often they don't have strong relationships with their family members. And so it's about looking at the practical implications of separation. Financial, can they cope? Can they access benefits? What about housing? If they're going to be moved away from a perpetrator, the address of that house needs to be kept secret and if it is disclosed then it might mean that that parent and those children have to move again it might mean a significant geographical move for the family which again prevents you having the continuous community support you have to start all over again and that can only add to the trauma that someone's experiencing and how that impacts on again their ability to parent Tied up in that is also that abusive relationships inevitably dent someone's confidence, the confidence that they feel that they can survive alone, that they can parent alone. Often they'll have been told that they're worthless or they're not a good parent. And that has a huge impact and it takes a really, really long time to break free of that noise in their head and to believe that they can do all the things that they've been told that they can't do. In terms of court proceedings, very often there's a fear of sharing what's happened with professionals. Lots of women I've worked with have grown up with the idea that don't trust social workers, don't trust professionals, they're only there to cause problems. And that unwillingness to work openly and honestly with professionals can work against them. So there's the sort of credibility issue, if I call it that, around... Are you able to work openly and honestly? There's going to be stuff that comes out which you haven't told the local authority that will then impact on your credibility later on and mean the court can't trust you. But then there's also if you're not willing or able to say what's been going on, then it's very difficult to provide you with the support that you need in order to help you practically, financially, emotionally, psychologically, in all the ways that that support is needed.
0: Yeah, I think that's a brilliant answer. When the children aren't in the care anymore, but they're still going through the proceedings and they're in an abusive relationship, do you think that makes the women feel more trapped in that abusive relationship to try and hold on to their family?
3: I think I've seen it work in lots of different ways. Sometimes where children are removed at the beginning of proceedings and placed into a foster placement it allows some space for that individual if they are prepared to get the support they need to break away from that abusive relationship. But the counterbalance to that is it adds the trauma that their children have been removed from their care and sometimes they're living quite far away If they don't have their own modes of transport, getting to contact can be very difficult and often contact is limited. And that can cause some people to freeze and hold on to what they've got stronger rather than let it go and think, oh, my gosh, I have to do something else. I need to think about something
0: else. So what measures have already been taken to make the process more caring and trauma-informed for victims of domestic abuse?
3: One of the first things that has had a significant impact on our approach to domestic abuse and domestic abuse proceedings is that it's the joint duty of the court and the parties to identify someone who's vulnerable and that has to be done at the earliest opportunity. So looking at how they can participate in the proceedings, but also how the quality of their evidence won't be diminished as a result of them being in fear or distress. There has been a real push in getting all advocates and judges trained in dealing with vulnerable witnesses, and that's something that's being offered nationwide, and the various toolkits that we've been provided with to help us to identify vulnerability has been a key thing that has enabled us to provide a more caring service that really considers the trauma and the impact of trauma on individuals. Then there are special measures. For a long time, the court has said that survivors should not be cross-examined in court by the perpetrators of abuse. When the Domestic Abuse Act came into effect, it codified those rules and effectively took away the opposition that someone might have to a survivor not being cross-examined by someone who they allege has abused them. What the Domestic Abuse Act also did was to bring in this system of qualified legal representatives, and they could be invited by the court to cross-examine someone just for that purpose. So there's a prohibition on perpetrators of domestic abuse or alleged perpetrators cross-examining victims. There's also the use of intermediaries, where there's concerns around someone having capacity, and that is used very well. There's much more focus on psychological assessments to understand what the impact of the trauma that they've experienced has had on them. The obvious question then arises of how that's dealt with within the timescales that are available. It is still a process and society's understanding generally of abuse has come a long way in the past 10 to 20 years When we are looking at care proceedings, one of the challenges is obviously looking at the current circumstances for the child and what needs to be done immediately to protect and safeguard that child from further harm and balancing that against what might be very long term needs of a survivor in terms of recuperating from the trauma of abuse. The court has come a long way trying to provide a service that notices trauma, that recognises vulnerability, that skills judges and lawyers up in dealing with that, that ensures that there is legislative and robust rules that deal with how that is. But I think there remains this conflict in terms of the children and the parent and how that is dealt with that can inevitably lead to a parent feeling that they are in a process that doesn't care for them and that is something that is really really hard to overcome and I think that is something that perhaps we still have a bit of a way to go to resolve.
0: post did a campaign called set up to fail and it was about the expertise recommendations and there's not those services in their area available or there's long waiting lists, which isn't the fault of the courts or the parents. It's a loss of services in the area themselves. So it's that tricky place to be in, isn't it, between being able to get that help, and not being able to get that help, simply down to what is available.
3: I totally agree. I think it's a bit of a postcode lottery in terms of What is or isn't available to you and also what your local authority is or isn't able to provide to you. And that can inevitably create a sense that there's unfairness in the system. It can be really hard for advocates when you are trying to find appropriate services for someone that you're representing and you can't find those either available in the timescales that you need them to be available or at all.
0: Is there anything else that needs to happen, in your opinion, for the courts to be more caring and trauma
3: A greater understanding of the importance of a therapeutic process alongside the, the legal process is really vital. That isn't something that is available within the system. As I say, it's only in really unusual cases that therapy is made available. But I think that is a really massive missing piece of the puzzle. And as you've mentioned, local resources, local support, and ensuring that there is a spread of that across the country so it's even, it's not concentrated in particular geographical areas.
0: Thank you so much to Rachel and Vicky for joining us for this episode and sharing the thoughts. It has been really insightful to get a frontline, local and legal perspective on some of the challenges women face when experiencing domestic abuse when there are children involved. We hope you have found this episode informative and we want to send a message of support to other mothers out there in a similar situation. You are not alone. Seek support and make your voice heard. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We'll be back soon with another podcast episode. But in the meantime, if you want to find out more about pause, just go to www.pause.org.uk or find us on Twitter or Instagram at pauseorg. Until next time, thank you.